for our message this morning. Let me open in a word of prayer. Father, we just, we come before you this morning, first and foremost, with hearts full of praise and worship and thanksgiving, first for our salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, you gave us the promised Holy Spirit. You, in fact, poured out your Holy Spirit upon us. Father, that we can know you more clearly, that we can be empowered by you to be your witnesses. Father, we pray this morning, I pray, Father, that the words I speak would only be pleasing to you and edifying to your body. I pray that everyone here listening to your word, Father, by your spirit, you would open hearts to receive the truth that is in them. And Father, in receiving that truth, that we would act on that truth and live by that truth. Father, we thank you for this day. We pray you would Bless your word. Bless your church. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So as you know, we've been in Acts. I think I've been up here able to jump into the beginning of Acts for maybe four or five weeks. And the title of today's message is Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And I'm still working through the the second chapter. And it's probably a little bit different for some of you to be studying Acts in this way. We're maybe a little bit more used to jumping into one of the letters like that are, that are theologically, it, it appears, rich, like Romans or Ephesians. And you might even ask, why did God inspire Luke to write it? And how should we apply it? It's been called the Acts of the Apostles. I don't think that was the original name to it. It was just applied to it over the years. And that's accurate, but it's also the Acts of the Holy Spirit establishing his church. And when we think about it, the things that caused the church to be established in strength, to grow so rapidly, to so amazingly spread throughout the world. Those circumstances are the same today. And the, and the truths and the patterns that we see take place in the book of Acts and even in these early pages are the things that will affect us mostly as we as a church seek to follow Christ and to be his, his witnesses in the world. I think that's why Luke wrote this. I think that's why God inspired Luke to write this. So up now we've seen Jesus command his disciples to go back to Jerusalem. And he said to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
We saw the dramatic events of the outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples. If you remember, there was this unbelievable sound of rushing wind. There was visually the sign of tongues as a fire that were descending upon the disciples. And then they were speaking in languages they shouldn't know. And others were hearing and understanding what they were saying without knowing those languages. And this led Peter to testify to this crowd that gathered around this commotion on the day of Pentecost that this is what the, Joel, that the prophet Joel predicted. This would be the sign of the last days. And if you remember in Acts 2.17, Peter quoting from the prophet Joel says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Great signs and wonders would be seen, the prophet says. And this would happen before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And that in those days, this is the promise of the prophet, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then as we saw last week, we saw Peter declare Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to or proved to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you were all witnesses. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. But you, Peter says, you crucified him and killed him. And you did so by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2.24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the grip of death because it was not possible for death to hold him. Well, I tell you, at this point, and remember, these are compressed moments. We've been covering this for five weeks. This probably took place in three minutes. Outside the temple, outside the house where the disciples were meeting. At this point, I imagine this crowd that is around them and hearing all this, their heads are just spinning. What? They cannot deny the events of the day of Pentecost. They see it before their eyes. They cannot deny the mighty works and wonders and signs publicly performed by Jesus and witnessed by them all. For years they'd seen and heard Jesus preach and teach. They called him teacher, rabbi. And on the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, in the end, as scripture predicted, everyone abandoned him. Some even crying, crucify him, crucify him. How things change. They saw him tried, crucified, and buried. 
But then the news spread like wildfire. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Jesus had been seen by witnesses, and a lot of them. Now Peter was telling them it was all according to God's plan, and that God had raised Jesus from the dead. The day of Pentecost had begun with the crowd asking, what does this mean? Having heard Peter speak, they are now asking, who is this Jesus? And that's what we want to look at this morning. And it's a question all of us must give an answer to. One way or another, you have to answer this question. Who is Jesus? You can't set him aside. You can't ignore him. You must respond. And it's here that we pick up our text for this morning. We're in Acts chapter 2, verse 25 to 35. Would you stand with me? And we'll read God's word together. Chapter 2, verse 25 to 35. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. You may be seated. So having told the crowd in verse 24 that God had raised Jesus from the dead, Peter quotes David's psalm here, which is Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And the Jews present on that day they, they knew this scripture well. It was written by David, their greatest king. He was the man after God's own heart who had defeated all their enemies as God had promised. The one God had favored, unlike any other man next to Moses, the one through whom God had promised his throne would be established and it would stand forever. But the question is, in this psalm, who was David speaking of? So we're going to look a little bit closely at these words from David, quoted by Peter. And we begin with David saying in verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me. 
And so many of, of David's inspiring psalms, they speak of one who has an intimate and close relationship with God the Father. I saw the Lord always before me. The psalmist focuses on God. His dependence is in God, and his purpose is found in God. And he goes on, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. He is confident, placing his trust in God. He is unshakable. Remember when Jesus said to build your house upon a rock? And don't miss that he is saying he is at my right hand. This is significant. It indicates a place of power and authority. And interestingly enough, historians note that the king's guard was always on his right-hand side. So the guard would be to his right, and his left hand, which is his shield hand, would always be in the ready to guard the king with his right hand free always to strike. I'd make a horrible centurion, you think. But it's this picture of strength and security. In the Song of Moses, in Exodus, where Moses is celebrating and worshiping the name of the Lord for all he had done for his people, the Song of Moses says this, Exodus 15, verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Well, here Peter continues quoting the psalmist in verse 26 saying, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Why? Why does he say his heart was glad and his tongue rejoiced? This is the gladness of heart and expressions of joy and worship that comes when we are certain of the Lord's security, his stability, his protection. And you know, there's a, there's a real point of application for us here. When we consistently lack a joyful heart, when a thankful spirit is most often absent. Maybe we should run a little checklist. I think we can ask ourselves, one, do I maintain my focus on the Lord and his purpose for me and those around me? Or is God an afterthought to what really consumes my life? Two, do I recognize the Lord's power and protection are always at my side? Or do I live a life of fear where problems are big and God is small? And three, do I rest knowing that as a child of God, I cannot be shaken? That nothing can happen to me that does not first come through the grid of God's love and purpose and plan for me. I think if we practice these things, we will know what the joy of the Lord is on a more consistent basis. Peter going on, quoting the psalmist says, 
At the end of verse 26, my flesh also will dwell in hope. What an odd saying, my flesh also will dwell in hope. And I think what he means is life will end. Death will win. But the psalmist says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Verse 27, or let your Holy One see corruption. See that? When he says his flesh will dwell in hope, he is saying God will not leave him with the dead, nor to the decay of the grave. The question down through the centuries of ancient theologians has always been, who could he be talking of? Everyone dies. No one had ever met anybody that hadn't, hadn't died. No one had met anybody who had died that they couldn't go and lift up the lid and, yep, still dead. So who is the psalm talking of? Well, the, the psalmist finally declares, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So the question remains, and which Peter sets about to answer, who is David speaking of in his psalm? Peter's conclusion, one, David cannot be speaking of himself. That's clear. He says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So one, we know David is dead, right? And has been for a very, very long time. Two, David was buried. It's a famous grave. And has long since decayed. Third, David's tomb is with us. And we're pretty sure he's still in it. No, David had to be speaking of someone else. And in verse 30, Peter tells us, David is speaking as a prophet, he says. David being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So the crowd understood immediately what Peter meant. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Towards the front, Samuel's after Judges and Ruth. Second Samuel chapter 7. And if you've been with the crowd that's reading through their, their, their Bible in a year, you've probably already passed through this section, and you might remember this. Um, this, this is a period of time. David is, is solidly on his throne. God has defeated his enemies. He's rescued him from Saul. David is, is full of gratitude, and he goes to the prophet Nathan, and he says, I want to build God a house, and it's going to be a grand house. Nathan initially says, that's a pretty good idea. Goes back, here's a word from the Lord, no, David's not going to build the house. 
Nathan returns to tell him this news, but he has additional news. God is making a covenant with David. And picking up in verse 12, chapter 7, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is the thing. David, David knew God's promises. Long before he ever wrote this song, Psalm, David knew God's promises. So that's why Peter says, God has sworn with an oath to David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Peter connects the dots for us with Psalm 16. And in verse 31 says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Or put more simply, Peter is saying that the Messiah would not remain dead, nor would his flesh be left in the grave to decay. David prophesied of the resurrection of Christ perhaps a thousand years before this day. Did you ever, did you know, many scholars say there are more than 300 prophecies from the Old Testament, some written thousands of years prior to Jesus' birth that point to him directly as the Messiah? Here's just eight that Jesus directly fulfilled in his lifetime. He fulfilled the prophecy of the time of his birth. And you can look to Daniel chapter 8 and 9 for the timeline provided there for the Messiah. Micah 5.2 predicts that he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14 predicts that he would be born of a virgin. Zechariah 11.12, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22.7 and 8, that the Messiah would be mocked. John 3.14, he would be crucified. Psalm 22.16, he would be pierced. And Isaiah 53.9, he would die with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich. How many prophecies did Jesus fulfill? It's debated, but it's a lot. 
One scholar, J. Barton Payne, has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. Alfred Edersheim found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or his times. So conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies. And that's why Peter confidently says of David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Therefore, Peter before the crowd declares to them, this Jesus, God raised up, of that we are all witnesses. Isn't that amazing? What a statement. And as we're going to see in the, in the conclusion of Peter's sermon here on the day of Pentecost, everybody agreed with him. There was no dissent. There was no confusion. There was no doubt. But that's the next sermon. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And remember last week how we talked about how public Jesus' life and ministry was? These wonders really happened. They happened among small and large groups. They happened in villages, on rooftops in the country. They happened in cities, in synagogues. They happened among the poor, the wealthy, and the powerful. His death and burial and resurrection were equally a public spectacle, perhaps more so. And they were witnessed in one fashion or another by all who were there before Peter. You know, years later, some 30 years later, the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, and then writing to the Corinthian church, he says this to them. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, meaning the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul, once a leader of the Pharisees, obsessed with hunting down Christians and, and, and destroying the church before it could ever get started, is now its greatest advocate, declaring Jesus is Lord, there is salvation in no other name. Peter declares there was not a person in the crowd that did not have direct or indirect knowledge of these events, saying, and of that, meaning the resurrection, we all are witnesses today. 
Well, Peter goes on in verses 33 and 30 through 35. And he is showing, he, he has shown in, in this section of text first that, that David is not speaking of himself, that David is speaking of the Messiah. He is, he is shown that Jesus fully fulfills the prophecies that the prophets laid down of the Messiah. And now he's declaring Jesus is at the right hand of God. Peter summarizes the events of the day saying in verse 33, Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All those events that revolved around the, the apostles and the disciples and the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost are because Jesus was exalted and he has the power to give his Holy Spirit to empower his people. Peter is telling us it's all God. It's all his plan. David foresaw that Christ would be raised. Death would not hold him, nor would he stay in the grave. Jesus' resurrection, Peter tells them, fulfilled that prophecy. And Peter emphatically states, for David did not ascend into the heavens. David didn't. David's still in the grave. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this morning, as I close, believer, it is a wonderful thing to be a friend of God, isn't it? If you are a follower of Jesus, you have access to the throne of heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. The power of God that sits at the right hand of God fights for you and protects you. And friend, if you do not consider yourself a believer, have you answered the question, who is Jesus? The Bible tells us these are the last days. The Lord has given us a window. Peter tells us later on that God is patient with us, not desiring anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. But one day Jesus will return. And at that point, he will judge the living and the dead. And if you are not in Christ, and you are there on that day, you will be judged and you will be accountable for each and every one of your sins. And these aren't the things that might offend you. These are the things that offend a holy and righteous God. But the promise until that day, and I love reading it, 
Back in Acts chapter 2, Peter quoting the prophet Joel of what would come. Telling them, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's my prayer. If you haven't trusted in Christ, that you would call upon his name. He will save you. He has a strong arm. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the book of Acts. For inspiring Luke to put down all the the events of the early church, recording the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. What we read today is the birth of the church. Lord, and even today we rely on your Holy Spirit. We can do nothing apart from you. We We can play church all day long. But if we are not sold out for you, if our focus is not on you and your plan and your purpose, but instead is focused on our plan and our purposes, the church will go nowhere. And Father, apart from your Holy Spirit that gives us insight into your word, that reveals your word to us so that we might know you. Lord, we are so grateful for these things. We pray even more that today you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon your church. Father, bring to our awareness what we need to do. Is there repentance that needs to take place? Father, is there a refocusing of what we consider important need to happen. Father, we want to be used by you. We want to be a church that glorifies you and magnifies you. Father, as was mentioned earlier, we want to be a people that are not ashamed of the gospel. Father, as we read the news, as we interact with our culture that seems so lost. Father, is that gospel alone, nothing else, no programs, no gimmicks? It is the gospel alone that is, that is, that is our culture, our, 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 our country, our world's only hope. Father, help us to be not ashamed, but be bold to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim, yes, Christ crucified, Christ risen. He has died for our sins. He has paid our debt. And the offer stands. All who call upon the Lord shall be saved. Father, we, we pray for this. And we will give you thanks for all of it. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, thank you, everyone. Hope you're blessed this morning, and I hope you're encouraged in, in the book of Acts. And, and uh, as it goes along, it just 
man, the tempo picks up and the um, work of the Holy Spirit in the church and seeing the church so dynamic and so alive and, 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 and see Christianity spread throughout the world in such a short period of time. That is the work of the Holy Spirit and, and it's amazing to behold and God wants to accomplish the same thing today that he wanted to accomplish then. Have a great week. Don't forget the um, facility week. Any moments you want to uh, come down and work, I know Joe Feldman will uh, 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 appreciate the support. Don't forget the um, Summer of Grace, Wednesday night lasagna dinner. We'd love to have you there. And uh, truly think about the, don't even think about, just sign up for the men's retreat. In, in the beginning of September. I know there's already about three guys that are going, I'm going. I'm looking forward to just an awesome time with other brothers in Christ. Get outside of my bubble, be challenged, be blessed, be renewed. And I hope you can join us. God bless you.